Let's pray. God, you are our Redeemer. We rejoice in you. Lord, you are our greatest treasure. God, unfortunately, our hearts are fickle, and we often live as if you're not our treasure, as if we don't value you at all. So Lord, please, this morning, once again, win our hearts, establish yourself as the center of our affections, of our joy. God, show us once again that you are indeed our greatest treasure, that nothing on earth can satisfy but you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Rex Blackburn. I'm a pastoral assistant here at Emmanuel Church. Uh, it's my privilege to be able to bring God's word to you. We're going to be in John chapter 15 this morning. John chapter 15. We are sort of between series at Emmanuel Church right now, and so there's been just a couple of sort of one-off topical messages, and this morning will be another one of those. John chapter 15 is where we're going to be this morning. We're just going to read one verse right now. We'll read a little bit more later on. But right now we're just going to read verse 11. Gospel of John chapter 15 verse 11. Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. In 2009... Time Magazine featured an article called 10 Ideas Changing the World Right Now. So Time Magazine, 10 Ideas Changing the World Right Now. Among those 10 ideas was one idea called the New Calvinism. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the term Calvinism, it just refers to a belief in the sovereignty of God in all things, particularly in salvation, such that God elects unconditionally who will be His. Now, what is meant by the term New Calvinism? Well, in the early 2000s, there was a surge of interest, particularly among younger evangelical Christians, in Calvinism and in the emphases of Calvinist teachings, what might be perceived as sort of an old, dusty, dry, academic, theological position, was embraced by younger Christians with fervor, with vigor, and was suddenly drawing Christians by the thousands, such that it landed itself in Time Magazine as one of the most important ideas changing the world at that time. With the new Calvinism came things like an attention to the Bible, the Bible's teachings on particular matters, uh, an emphasis on robust preaching, corporate worship. These are things that sort of came with the new Calvinism, with this theological emphasis. And these people that embraced this, they were called at the time the young, restless, and reformed, sort of the moniker that was given to them. These people were heralding this theology not as dour and dusty and old, but as vibrant, comforting, intoxicating even, were adjectives used about the theology of Calvinism. At the center of this movement, and I'll admit uh, I could have been considered one of the young, restless, and reformed, uh, I, I came to Calvinism and those teachings in that time period, uh, though I would hope that I was not extremely restless about it. Um, 
at the center of this movement was a man whose theological and preaching ministries were sort of like the sparks that started this fire. And that man is John Piper. It's a name that's probably familiar to most of you in this room. Maybe for some of you it's an unfamiliar name. If, it, if you're unfamiliar with him, just go to YouTube sometime, type in John Piper and enjoy. Uh, some, of the, some of the finest preaching that there is to offer today. I attribute so much to John Piper for shaping the way that I think about God and I think about the world. So what, what was unique about John Piper? Is unique about John Piper. He's still alive. Um, what's unique about John Piper? What, what was it about his preaching and his theology that uh, sort of placed him at the center of this movement that was so world-changing? Well, certainly the way he preaches. Those of you that have watched or heard John Piper preach, uh, very passionate preacher, God-entranced, to use his language. But also there's something about the theology of John Piper that swept so many people off their feet, myself included. He called it, still calls it, Christian hedonism. So if you're unfamiliar with the word hedonism, um, it's a philosophy that means that your main pursuit, your primary objective in life, in the world, is the pursuit of pleasure. So enjoying as much pleasure as you possibly can is the best way to live life. That's hedonist talking. So what's Christian hedonism? Well, according to John Piper, Christian hedonism means someone whose entire life is about the pursuit of pleasure in God. So the best life you could possibly have is the most satisfied life, the life with the most pleasure possible, maximum delight in God, in Christ. Um, the, the summary statement for Christian hedonism, some of you will know this statement by heart, um, is that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. I saw one or two people mouthing it along with me, some people nodding. Familiar knowledge for many of you, I hope. Uh, Piper would hearken back to the first question of the Westminster Catechism. Westminster starts, what is the chief end of man? What's the primary objective of our lives on earth? And the answer is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And Piper tweaked that and said, no, it's close. It's to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. So we glorify God, not as a separate pursuit of enjoying Him, but we, we glorify Him by enjoying Him. Our joy in God, our delight in God is the means by which he gets glory. This was Christian hedonism. Now, you may dislike the term Christian hedonism. Uh, it caught a lot of flack. That's fine. That's neither here nor there. But what John Piper brought to the attention of so many people was this statement that if our lives are to be lived for God's glory, there's no way to do that better than being maximally satisfied in God have maximum joy in God, maximum delight in God. The undercurrent beneath the new Calvinism that gave it sort of a joyfulness and a liveliness and emphasis on delight, all that's coming from John Piper's teachings on joy. However, nothing wrong with those teachings at all. I think they're perfectly fine and commendable. But I've noticed that as time has kind of marched on, in the 13 years since that Time Magazine article has been released, 
that emphasis on joy, on delight, on pleasure, on satisfaction in God uh, has sort of waned. Uh, And even if it hasn't waned, it's sort of assumed, sort of taken for granted. Um, Especially with for many people that are familiar with guys like John Piper. Yeah, God's most glorified in us and we're most satisfied. Yeah, 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 yeah. I got a Christian hedonism, John Piper. Yeah, I, I know that. Um, I want to, this morning, take an opportunity to sort of try to recalibrate our understanding of joy as an essential Christian characteristic. Not because of John Piper, uh, but because Christ wants you to be joyful. Jesus wants you, Christian, to be joyful, and not just joyful, he wants you to be maximally joyful, full joy. Your capacities for delight, for satisfaction, for pleasure, all full. That's what Jesus wants. Hearts that are captured by his glory, his love, his tenderness towards sinners, and then basking in all of those wonderful excellencies, we find ourselves happy. That's what Jesus wants for his people. So this morning, we're here looking at John 15, 11. And before we sort of dive in, I want to say one word about the type of sermon that this is. I mentioned this earlier. This is a topical message. Um, now, typically, when you come to Emmanuel, you will have Alex up on the stage, typically, or me or someone else, just in the middle of a series going through some book, whether that be Ephesians or Colossians, or the book of John, or Habakkuk. And the job of the preacher that morning is to just sort of take up the next passage, right? Um, This morning, that's not what is happening. This morning, instead of doing what that's called as expository preaching, um, this morning the preaching is a little bit more topical, which means that, yes, we will be focused on John 15, but not just on John 15. My labor this morning isn't to do a thorough exposition of John 15 and bring out all the points that are there and lay them out before you. Uh, My point this morning is to take up a topic in the Scriptures, and though we will mainly focus on John 15, to look at some other places as well and just sort of kind of dwell on how the Bible as a whole treats this topic of joy in the Christian life. So, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. I want to take that passage and sort of use it as an outline. So if there are three sort of propositions in that passage, the first one, these things I have spoken to you. Okay, so I'm going to kind of use that as point one, and let's look at, okay, what what does Jesus say about joy? And more largely, what does the Bible say about joy? What things have been spoken to us concerning joy? Uh, that my joy may be in you, Jesus continues. So point two, let's look at that idea of Christ's joy in us. What does that mean? And then three, that your joy may be full. Let's just dwell on that idea, the idea of fullness of joy in the Christian life. What does that mean? So point one, let's start off here by saying, okay, what does the Bible say about joy? What does Jesus tell us about joy? Well, first, let's get a definition in front of us. What do we mean when we say joy? Well, we've mentioned John Piper. Here's his definition of the word joy. Christian joy is a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ both in the Word and in the world. Okay? So, 
interesting word that you might have noticed there at the beginning. He starts off by saying Christian joy is a good feeling. That's interesting. Because a lot of times you will hear preachers try to labor that joy is not a feeling. Feelings are transitory and temporary, and Christian joy is deep and abiding. That's true. That doesn't mean that we don't experience or feel joy, though. Joy is something that we experience. Joy is something that we feel. Uh, It's deeper than just some other feelings, like people use happiness sort of lightly, um, giddiness, things like that. It's, it's, It's deeper than that, yes. I understand what the preacher's trying to do there. But that doesn't mean that joy is not a feeling or something that we do experience, because it is. Piper's right to to hit on that. Put more simply, joy is delight in Christ. It's a pleasure, satisfaction. But notice, it's not just any old pleasure for its own sake. It's a deep and abiding pleasure stabilized by its object. Right? It's a pleasure that's stabilized, made firm, by its object, and the object here is Christ. So because our pleasure is in Christ, and Christ is perfectly stable, that brings us stability to the satisfaction, the joy that we experience. This pleasure arises from a focus on Christ, so it's not transitory, it's not flighty, it is deep, it is stable, it has roots in the Christian heart. Another definition from someone else who thought as much or more about joy than John Piper coming from C.S. Lewis. Um, Some of you might know the name of C.S. Lewis's autobiography, Surprised by Joy. Uh, C.S. Lewis, in telling the tale of his life, tells it through the lens of his experience of what he thinks of as joy. Here's how Lewis describes it. It's a little bit different. A sharp, (laughs) love this, a sharp, wonderful stab of longing. Wonderful. Another one from Lewis. An unsatisfied desire, which is itself more desirable than any other satisfaction. An unsatisfied desire, which in itself is more desirable than any other satisfaction. One more from Lewis. Joy might also equally well be called a kind of unhappiness or grief, but a kind that we want. Okay, so Lewis, what he brings to the table with his definition of joy, the way he thinks about joy, it's not a satisfaction. In a sense, it is an unsatisfaction, a desire, a longing, a wanting, in this case, for more of God, more of his glory, a looking for the things of another world that we're not experiencing yet. So joy is sort of, if we take those two definitions paradoxical, right? There's sort of an already not yet thing happening with joy here. It's a fullness, even to the point of overflowing, yet it's it's a wanting of more. The Christian says, Lord, you're my shepherd and I lack nothing. And then he also says, Lord, I need you. I need your presence. I long for communion with you. And both of those statements are expression of the Christian's joy. Both the satisfaction he finds in God and the longing that he feels for more of God. It's not like eating a meal where you have an appetite, you want food, then as you eat, you fill up, your appetite diminishes, then disappears. 
to the point where you might even, you just ate a huge meal, you'll look at food and you think, I could never again eat food. Couldn't think of eating more food. The thought of taking another bite makes me sick. Why? You're full. But humans have been designed with eternal image of God sort of capacities for pleasure, for delight, for our loves. And so with something like joy, it is often those who are most joyful that have the sharpest pangs for more of Christ. Right? Isn't it always those who have experienced Christ most deeply and most fully in this life who long most sharply and acutely for the life to come? So in the Christian life, joy and pleasure, as we get more of these things, it doesn't cause our appetites to wane or diminish. It causes our appetite to increase. And so we take those two definitions of joy and put them side by side, and this is what we get. And we see this in the scriptures. One example is in Psalm 84. This is a, a, a little passage that you'll be familiar with probably. In Psalm 84 two, the author says, My soul longs even faints for the courts of the Lord. See? Stab of longing, desperation even, my soul faints for God. The very next statement, not a next sentence, it's like a semicolon, parallel thoughts here, not contrasting thoughts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. So you see what's happening there. The psalmist is expressing in the same breath his longing, his fainting for more of God and his utter delight and joy in who God is. So this gives us an idea about what joy is. Let's take a look at this passage and see what it says about obtaining and experiencing this sort of joy. Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So let's ask, okay, what things is he talking about here? It would be irresponsible of us to just say, oh, well, the Bible. These things I've spoken to you, these, these pages, it's all the Word of God, Jesus has called the Word, this is the Bible, boom, it's just everything here. Now, I'm not saying that that's even necessarily incorrect, but I think it's pretty clear reading the passage, it's not necessarily what Jesus has in mind here. Jesus has just said some things, and then he says, these things I've said to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So let's look at what that these things is. What is this that Jesus has just said to us? So in John 15, let's read it, verse 1. We're going to read down to the passage that we've already read. Jesus says, I'm the true vine. My Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone doesn't abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, 
you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So again, we're not doing deep exposition of this entire passage, but let's notice a couple things that are mentioned. First thing, right out of the gate. We start off with warning. Right? Beginning of John 15. I'm the true vine, my father's the vine dresser. The vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. That's warning. Later in this passage, he's going to say, branches that don't bear fruit, they get cut off, thrown into the fire, and burned. Notice, when the Bible warns you, when Jesus warns you, it is apparently for your joy. Right? Jesus says, these things I've spoken to you so that your joy may be full. What things? Well, a couple of those things are, hey, any branch that's not in me is cut off and thrown into the fire and burned. Jesus is saying that for your joy. It is for your joy that Jesus warns you of eternal fire. What sort of dire strait would you be in if he were not to warn you? If the Bible only came along and told you how wonderful you are in spite of your sinfulness. But God is too kind to us to let us not be warned of his wrath and our sinfulness and then comforted by his mercy. Something else we should notice is the joy that comes with fruitfulness is achieved by abiding in Christ. So if there's one emphasis to take away from this passage... If I was going to exposit this passage, I'd be focusing big on that statement, abiding in Christ. Why? It shows up over and over and over again, and everything else that's in the passage flows out of that center. So just glancing at this passage, we need to come away with this. Abiding in Christ is central to our joy. This is how we experience his joy in us. This is how we experience fullness of joy. We must be connected to the vine to receive the nutrients from it. Uh, Actually, John Piper on this passage. Quote, Believing in Christ is an attachment to, a coming to Jesus, and a receiving from Jesus. It is trusting in Jesus, remaining in fellowship with Jesus, connecting to Jesus, so that all God is for us in him is flowing like a life-giving sap into our lives. Abiding is believing, trusting, savoring, resting, receiving. So he's taking all these words that John has used for this same phenomenon and saying, hey, this is what he means here. It's how John uses language. So what does it mean to abide in Christ? It means to come to Christ to believe Christ, to trust Christ, to receive Christ, to have Christ. All of these are ways the Bible talks about believing in Christ and abiding in Him. We see also that God is glorified as our abiding in Christ leads to fruitfulness. And then that fruitfulness serves as a validation that we are, in fact, disciples of Jesus. So if, the, if we're to bring the world around us to this joy that we've experienced, apparently we do so We're validated as disciples so the world will know that you are my disciples if you bear much fruit. So this abiding in Christ produces a fruitfulness in our lives that validates our status as disciples of Christ. And finally, we see that joy in Christ cannot be severed from Christian obedience. 
So just before verse 11, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full, what does Jesus say? If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept the Father's commandments and abide in his love, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you. We cannot separate an inner experience of joy in Christ from actual, real, wholehearted obedience to his commands. Jesus won't let us do that here. Jesus says, obey my commands just like I obey the Father's commands, and then my joy is going to be in you, and your joy is going to be full. So we can't separate out our, our inner Christian life and our experience of joy from actual, real obedience to the commands of Christ. So there's just a couple of key points from that passage. Now, what does the Bible as a whole say about joy? Now, obviously, you could do an entire day on just tracking the use of joy through the entire scriptures. I'll just note a couple of things and make a couple of declarative statements here. Joy is to be present all the time in the Christian life. If you're going to read the New Testament specifically about joy, that's one thing you're not going to miss. Do a Google search on passages about joy in the New Testament. And one emphasis that you're going to come away with is, boy, this is apparently supposed to be a permanent factor in my life. It's supposed to be present and abiding all the time. We're told to rejoice continually. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say to you, rejoice. Also, joy is a gift from God. So it's present all the time, but it's not like it's something we manufacture ourselves. I can't, I can't make joy happen in my heart. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, etc. Joy is a gift from God. Also, it's a communal experience. Joy is experienced in community with other believers. Uh, we seek to, number one, share our joy with others as best we can. But also, God often grants us joy through one another. Some of my greatest joys have come from Christian community. Hopefully yours have too. You might be the very means God uses to make my heart glad in Him. And vice versa. So, when, when you're kind of laying out your calendar, deciding how much involvement you're going to have in a given week or a given month with other people, other folks from the church, in people's homes, at church events... Consider, I need them, and they need me. Our joy is enhanced. Our joy is brought about oftentimes by our interactions with other Christians. Something else, joy in God is to be more desired than anything else the present world has to offer. Also, obedience, we saw this in John 15, obedience to God's commands leads to joy. Other places we see that. Psalm 19, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments God gives to us are good and right, and therefore they make us glad when we align with them. 1 John, this is the love of God that we keep his commands and that his commands aren't burdensome. So, we've looked at sort of what our passage says about joy. Looked at what the Bible as a whole says about joy. Again, just made a couple of observations, not doing a, a whole survey here. Now, let's ask some specific questions about the rest of this passage. So Jesus says that my joy may be in you, Christ's joy in us. I won't camp out very long here, but a couple of observations to make. First, are the obvious sort of Trinitarian implications here. 
Jesus says, my joy, my joy may be in you. The joy of the Son of Christ. Is Christ joyful? So when you think about Jesus, alive, risen, right now, do you think of him as joyful? Is that part of how you picture Jesus' disposition toward you? Happy, glad-hearted, full of joy. And not only joyful, but wanting to share that joy with us. Well, the simple answer is yes, Christ is joyful. Uh, in fact, the Bible's picture of the whole Trinity is this sort of dance of glory and love and mutual joy in one another within the members of the Godhead. The Trinity is a mutual exchange of delight and joy and love. God says, I love my Son, and I am pleased with Him. This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. Jesus says, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. In John 17, you get a lot of this. Jesus says that the Father and the Son glorify one another. And that they are one, the Father and the Son, the Son and the Father. And then Jesus says, I want my people to be a part of that oneness. And then to share that oneness among themselves. So, as Christians, as God's people, we are invited in to experience this oneness and mutual delight and joy and glory of the Trinitarian Godhead. Marvelous things that are afforded us as Christians. But one passage makes extremely clear that it is the Son that is joyful. In Hebrews 2, you don't have to turn there. The Bible says, actually this is Hebrews 1, I think that's wrong here in my notes. But of the Son... He says, so the author of the Hebrews, the author of Hebrews in chapter one, he's laying out how Christ is a superior messenger to like the prophets and the angels. And he says, the Bible says certain things about angels, but it says such more glorious things about the Son. And one of those things is, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So this is all about the Son. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Indeed, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above all your companions. So, Hebrews gives us this picture, it's quoting the Psalms, of the Father sort of infusing the Son, anointing the Son with this gladness, this joy above anyone else that's around Him. So, part of what God commissioned Christ to do and to be was to be glad to be glad above all of those that were his companions. So though he was the man of sorrows, he was the happiest person to ever live. Quick note there, do you realize, therefore, that your happiness does not depend on you having a life free of suffering? Your joy isn't dependent on the fact that you never go through anything hard. Who has suffered more than Christ? Imagine the weight of your sin, sometimes impossible to bear. Now imagine Christ, perfect, sinless, innocent, taking on himself voluntarily the sins of all those who are his people. What suffering? We sing the song, Man of Sorrows. What a name. Yet, 
anointed with the oil of gladness beyond all his companions by God himself. Your life as a Christian being full of joy doesn't mean you don't have suffering. Because Christ, who promises to give you his own joy, suffered more than you could ever hope to. Christ, who suffered most, has the most joy, and then promised us to give us that self-same joy. So what does that mean? What does it mean to have his joy in us? Well, earlier in John, Christ promised to give us his peace. Earlier in this chapter, he commanded us to abide in his love. And now he promises that his joy will be in us. Christ is the author of our joy. Christ sustains our joy. It is the Spirit of Christ which drives out anxieties and cares that gives to his people a calm cheerfulness. Christ unites himself to us by his Holy Spirit. And therefore, through Christ, we have access to supplies of gladness and cheer that we could never have otherwise. And how does this occur? Well, apparently, through abiding in Christ, obedience to Christ, loving, receiving, treasuring Christ, produces joy in Christ. And who better to come along and promise to do this for us than the God-man who was anointed by his Father with the oil of gladness? So yes, Christ is joyful, and Christ promises that as we abide in him, as we obey him, as we abide in his love, we will experience his own joy in us. Third, these things I've spoken to you, so we kind of saw what that was, got an idea of what that was, that my joy may be in you. Yes, we serve a joyful Christ, and that your joy may be full. So what is our experience of this joy like? Well, first let's examine some possible hindrances to our joy. Brothers and sisters, we live in a joyless world. We live among a prevailing culture that is miserable. Though it's obsessed with good times and having pleasure. I could go on for hours on the ways in which our world, the prevailing culture, again, not like creation and nature, uh, but in which the prevailing culture of our world is utterly and completely joyless, bankrupt of happiness. Um, I, I have spent several years teaching high school students at a boarding school. Story after story, illustration after illustration of how this world has nothing to offer them in the way of joy and contentment and satisfaction. So many live in complete isolation. No real sense of community or friendship or companionship. Uh, people are addicted to their devices. Social media, like a virus, picks off the, the weakest and youngest among us. Depression is rampant. Suicidal ideation, rampant, particularly among young people. Self-centeredness and narcissism abound. There's a foolishness that just prevails our culture right now. Even those basic truths about what it means to be human are called under question now. People are angry. People are alone. We live in a world in which men regularly abdicate their roles as fathers, husbands, providers, protectors, leaders. Instead, choosing prolonged adolescence. Doing anything to avoid facing the duties and responsibilities that come with manhood. And then a culture of death prevails in this world so long as abortion is tolerated. 
yea, celebrated. More and more women, though many are duped into abortions because they believe they've been told it's just a clump of cells inside them, more and more, especially younger women, know exactly what's going on, and they don't care. I've seen the videos. I've heard the statements from, from people in my presence. I know what it is. I don't care. I know it's a baby. Why? All for the sake of sexual autonomy. Chasing after pleasure and delight and joy and novel sexual experiences. But as we know, that will turn to ash in their mouths. For when the act of sex is divorced from both marriage and childbearing, when sex becomes recreational instead of procreational, the door is wide open for all sorts of abuse. For women to be physically taken advantage of, to be abandoned, children increasingly left without fathers, women often left alone to shoulder the responsibilities of parenthood by themselves. The entertainment industry in our world. Look at what's prioritized, what's glorified. Violence, promiscuity, tearing down even the most basic truths about how God has made the world. Is it any wonder that in such a just debauched, unhappy world that violence and murder abound? It's a, it's, it, it's a soup of wickedness that surrounds us in this world. And it's impossible to overstate. The world in which we live is evil. People around us hate God and reject Him as King. And worse than that, it's not just the world that's evil. We can't sit here and point outwards at the world and say, what evil? How dare they? Because our own hearts are wicked. Our own hearts are fickle double-minded. Our flesh constantly works to subvert the joy that Christ would have you experience. We think things we don't want to think. We do things we don't want to do. We say things we wish we wouldn't say. Sin robs us of joy by obscuring Christ's value. If Christ is worthless, if Christ is unappealing to us, if Christ seems boring to us, if the Bible seems dull to us, why in the world would we place that at the center of our lives? And so because of sin's power to pull our affections away from Christ, our lives have no center sometimes, no defining point, no north star in that situation. And so those sorts of Christians quickly find themselves adrift. And if you're familiar with your New Testament, words like drift are not good things. Drifting is Demas. Drifting is Lot's wife. Consider, consider Hebrews 2.1. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? How shall we escape if we neglect negligence toward Christ. That speaks of a heart that's not joyful in Christ, not abiding in Christ. Drift and neglect are the pathways of the joyless heart, and the destination is destruction. Yet, so again, fullness of joy. Those are hindrances, real hindrances to your joy, real obstacles between you and lasting joy in Christ. Yet, in spite of all this, God's people are to be a diamond on this black backdrop. God's people are to be a city set on a hill, gloriously silhouetted against the destruction and death that are happening all around us. In this community, there should be a marked, 
unmistakable difference that contrasts us with the joylessness and emptiness of the world around us. Christian, as a child of God, joy is your Christian duty. In light of God's glory, God's greatness, God's wrath towards sinners like you, and yet his tenderness and mercy offered to you, there's so much to be joyful about. And your job, therefore, is to fight for joy. Christian, you've probably heard this before, but hear it again. Your job is to fight for joy, to take up the weapons of warfare in the Christian life and make every single inch count towards joy. Each day, we are to recall to our minds those things that remind us of Christ. Now, obviously, God's word and communion with God are central here. But don't underestimate other areas of of life that contribute to this battle. Are there good, encouraging things that call your mind to think about Jesus, like music, books, habits? Uh, These things can help to remove obstacles between you and your joy in Christ. Some of these are very practical. For instance, it's really difficult to be sober-minded and joyful in your Christian life when you haven't gotten a lot of sleep, when you stayed up later than you should have irresponsibly. Right? Even the food you eat can contribute to your ability to take joy in Christ or not take joy in Christ. If you've ever spent time eating really good food and then you eat some junk, you feel it. If you make a habit of eating junk, That sort of feeling can take up residence in your life, can make you feel lethargic. Now, this is by no means a silver bullet to your joy in Christ, eating the right things and getting enough sleep, but it could perhaps be another fiery dart in the hands of Satan. Your enemy will overlook no advantage that he can take over you. Just as God is concerned with the manner in which we eat and drink, that it would be to his glory, so too our great enemy would seek to further denigrate God and his glory in the way we eat and drink, in the way we go to bed, in the way we get up in the mornings. Though they may not be where the battle is hottest, these are areas where skirmishes often happen in our spiritual lives. May we redeem these places, diet, exercise, sleep, etc., for God's glory and our joy. It should be noted as well that as we fight for joy, that joy must persevere through trial. In a world where sin has brought death and decay to everyone, you should know you will suffer. I will suffer. Good news from the doctor is good news, but you missed one bullet on a battlefield where you're going to get hit. Sadness and tragedy, sickness and want, conflict, these things will visit our homes at some point. But this is where the Christian spirit shines. James 1 tells us that we're to count it all joy when we meet various kinds of trials. Why? Because we trust God to do what's right, to only give us what's good, to reward, to give us a reward for suffering faithfully, that reward being steadfastness in Christ and glory in the life to come. This should infuse us with an indomitable joy. Jonathan Edwards was one of, if not the most, prominent theologian that America's ever produced. When he passed away, his wife, Sarah, wrote a letter to their daughter, Esther. And Esther had just lost her husband six months before. 
Here's what Sarah, Mrs. Edwards, had to say to her daughter. My very dear child, what shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Oh, that we may kiss the rod and lay our hands upon our mouths, for the Lord our God has done it. He has made me adore his goodness that we had your father so long, but my God lives and he has my heart. What a legacy my husband and your father has left us. We are all given to God, and there I am and love to be. Your affectionate mother, Sarah Edwards. Joy in trial. Joy in suffering. And then, as we fight for joy in this life, we must know that one day we will no longer fight for joy, but we will experience joy evermore at the right hand of God. Two final applications, and then I'll close. In the fight for joy, do not overlook the massive importance of this gathering. Surely, you've had this same experience that I have, when for whatever reason, you wake up Sunday morning and you, don't, you just don't feel like worshiping God. You don't feel like getting ready, going to church again, just as we do week by week. Perhaps, perhaps circumstances and feelings and schedules all sort of coalesce to make the corporate gathering seem undesirable for whatever reason. Then you show up anyways and find that the singing, the encouragements from your brothers and sisters, the confessions of faith, the preaching, lift your soul out of that despond and make you wonder how you ever doubted God's goodness in commanding us to gather together. Brothers, sisters, in your fight for delight in God, I said don't neglect the skirmish areas on the outskirts of the Christian life, but also don't neglect this area the very center of the battle. So much ammunition for your fight for joy is given to you on Sunday mornings. And then finally, for any here that find yourselves regularly cast down, regularly experiencing cheerlessness, never experiencing joy, delight, gladness, these things seem foreign to you. Anxiety, care, despondency, despair, these are where you live. You would find yourself in what might be called a dark night of the soul. Can a Christian even be in such a place? Yes. In fact, some of the most robust and fruitful Christians in God's kingdom have regularly found themselves in this sort of state. So please know, Christ does not forsake you in such times. He's with you. Really, actually with you. Praying to the Father that your faith would not ultimately fail. There's a, a book called Pilgrim's Progress. It's an allegory of the Christian's journey from the city of destruction to the celestial city. It's a, an allegory of the Christian life. Christian goes to the house of one called the interpreter, sort of a wise man who shows Christian these, these images and interprets them for him, and they teach some sort of lesson. Quote, Then I saw in my dream, that the interpreter took Christian by the hand and led him into a place where there was a fire burning against a wall. And one standing by it always, casting much water on it to quench the fire, yet the fire burned higher and hotter all the time. Christian said, what means this? And the interpreter answered, this fire is the work of grace that is wrought in the heart of a Christian. He that casts water on it to extinguish it and put it out is the devil. But you see that notwithstanding, the fire burns brighter and hotter and higher. 
you shall also see the reason for that. So he led Christian around to the back side of the wall where he saw a man with a vessel of oil in his hand, which he also did continually cast secretly into the fire from behind. Then said Christian, what does this mean? The interpreter answered, this is Christ who continually with the oil of his grace maintains the work already begun in the heart by means of which whatever the devil can do the souls of his people prove gracious still. And when you saw that the man stood behind the wall to maintain the fire, this is to teach you that it is hard for the tempted to see how this work of grace is maintained in the soul. So this image from Pilgrim's Progress that there's this fire of grace in the Christian heart that's burning. And though the devil tries to cast water on it over and over and over again, the the fire burns brighter and hotter and higher. Why? Behind the wall, in secret, to teach you that it is very hard when you're tempted to see God's grace at work in your heart, Christ supplies the Christian heart with the oil of his grace. Keeping the fire of joy, of abiding in him, of his love alive in that Christian heart. So afflicted Christian, take heart. Christ will maintain in your heart what he has begun. The night will not last forever. And what comes in the morning? Joy. He will not let your soul be lost, but instead his promises will last and your joy will be full. In all, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Be glad. Christ has come, and he has come with tidings of comfort and joy. Know that it is the will of God for you to be happy in him. He is glorified best when we have the most joy in him. So Christian, stir up your heart this morning, this moment, right now, to be glad in your Christ. Let's pray. God, the world is so wicked. There are people right now that make it their aim to dethrone you from every part of society that they possibly can. God, our hearts are wicked. God, we feel our sinfulness. Sometimes it seems like our sin is always before us. But Lord, in spite of our wickedness, in spite of the world's wickedness, in spite of our great enemy working to extinguish the fire of your grace in our hearts, God, please restore to us the joy of your salvation. God, make our hearts glad in you. If we have been apathetic towards you, if we have found you dull and uninteresting, God, remove the scales from our eyes. Help us to see. Make our hearts glad in you this very morning as we sing right now, infuse joy into our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.